Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the Gospel of the Lord. I wonder, uh, what are your priorities for 2023? Now, I'm going to hazard a guess that most of us haven't sort of sat down and carefully considered our priorities for the year ahead. Now, I might be wrong about that, um, so let's do a little straw poll. Uh, if you have compiled a list of priorities for 2023, raise your hand. Okay, a few people, that's okay, good. If you have um, given it some thought, but you've not made a list so you could easily rattle off your top three priorities uh, for 2023 without giving it another thought, raise your hand. Okay, a few more, that's good. If you feel a bit like your uh, main priority is to survive the melange of tasks, activities, engagements, responsibilities, and commitments that come at you on any given day, raise your hand. Okay, that's probably the majority. Sometimes it can feel like we don't really know what our priorities are, or we think we know what our priorities are, but those things that we think are our priorities are not really our priorities. So how can we ascertain what our priorities are? Well, some would say, well, the way we spend our time and money is a good indication. And it can be, especially if the person concerned uh, has a bit of money to spare or, um, you know, if there's someone that works all the hours they can because they're motivated by money, those uh, kind of things. Uh, but a lot of people would say, well, I spend most of my time working and I spend most of my money on bills. Uh, those are my priorities, uh, but it doesn't say anything about where my heart is at. I think the best way to assess our priorities is to pay attention to our thought lives. What do we spend most of the time thinking about, especially when we're not working? Uh, what is the first thing we think about when we wake up in the morning? 
what is the last thing we think about at night. When we're relaxed and we've got the freedom to think about anything, what kind of thoughts do we entertain? Are we thinking about work? That doesn't necessarily mean that work is the priority. It could be uh, the sense of achievement or accomplishment is the priority. Or maybe work is just something that's really worrying us and playing on our mind. Uh, Are we daydreaming about a holiday, relaxing on a beach somewhere? Then maybe uh, rest and relaxation and doing fun things is our priority. Are we thinking about friends and family? Maybe relationships are our priority, or the welfare of our loved ones, or the need uh, to be loved and appreciated. And none of those, all of those things are, are, are perfectly uh, healthy things. And I have to say that too much uh, navel-gazing, I think it's definitely not a good thing, but sometimes we should analyze the thoughts that we're having. Why am I thinking about this so much? What is the reason behind it? What does it say about my priorities? And most importantly, what does it say about my commitment to the life that Jesus has called me to? As it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Well, today we're going to see that our understanding of who Jesus is will make a huge difference to our priorities. And our passage begins with Jesus asking his disciples this question. He says, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Uh, Their answer is, of course, at the more agreeable end of the spectrum. Uh, They don't make reference to those who highlighted Jesus's parentage, and made thinly veiled aspersions about the honor of his mother. Uh, They don't mention the fact that uh, some accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan. Uh, Then, just as now, opinions about Jesus varied enormously. What the disciples do is they give a number of widely held uh, views that are in accord with Jesus being a person who has been sent by God. And then Jesus posed them a much more confronting question. He said, and what about you? Who do you say I am? The question, who is Jesus, is of paramount importance. Our eternal destiny rests on our response to this question because in answering it, we're making a decision to accept or reject the sovereignty of Christ. Not surprisingly, uh, Peter was the one to answer Uh, He was all heart and passion. He'd very often just blurt out whatever was in his mind. Sometimes, as here, that was a good thing, and he got it right. Other times, uh, he put his foot in it. Uh, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter responded, you are the Messiah. And in Matthew's gospel, he's recorded as saying, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, to understand uh, what Peter meant by Messiah... We need to be familiar with Israel's history because God's people had been through uh, a pretty rough time, uh, largely because of their disobedience and rebellion against God, but a rough time nevertheless. So about 600 years before the birth of Christ, they were carried off to captivity in Babylon, uh, where they remained as exiles for about 70 years. Uh, The city of Jerusalem, and more importantly, the temple 
were destroyed. And when the exiles returned to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple, but it never regained its former glory. So those who had seen it, uh, the first temple, were, were, were quite disappointed by that. After the death of Alexander the Great in 333 BC, uh, the Greek Empire was divided three ways. Uh, and Jerusalem was first occupied by a group called the Ptolemies, and then they were occupied by the Seleucids, and the leader, the ruler of the Seleucids, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, he persecuted the Jews. He even sacrificed pigs in the temple. Uh, you couldn't do anything more heinous than that from a Jewish perspective. Then in 63 BC, the Romans took control of Palestine. And of course, the Holy Land was under Roman control at the time of Jesus. So the Jews were understandably fed up with being attacked, beleaguered, exiled, and persecuted. They were fed up with being occupied by foreign invaders who had no regard uh, for their religion or their customs or their culture. And they longed for the day when God would reverse their fortunes by sending the anointed one, the Messiah, uh, in Greek, the Christ. And if we want to know what kind of Messiah they were expecting, uh, Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, uh, gives us a pretty good overview. It says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When we read something like that, we can understand why the Jews were expecting a military and political leader, a powerful figure, powerful in the way that the world understands power, uh, a leader who would defeat the Romans and establish God's kingdom forever. That is what they were expecting. And when Peter uses the word Messiah, that is what he has in mind. And when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 you got it wrong. I'm not the Messiah. He simply warns them not to tell anyone. In other words, yes, I am the Messiah, but you need to keep this information to yourselves for the time being. Uh, and of course, Jesus was a very different Messiah to the one they were expecting. But Jesus warns them not to tell anyone because at this stage, if large numbers of people uh, realize or believe that Jesus is the Messiah, it will almost certainly trigger a violent uprising against the Romans. Jesus has a clear purpose, and the timing of each stage of his ministry is crucial. So they've got a, a clear idea of who Jesus is, of who the Messiah is, what the Messiah will do. And then Jesus drops this absolute bombshell. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and after three days rise again. Have you ever watched a film where the hero of the story dies? Uh, there's quite a few films like this. Uh, 
Braveheart, Gladiator, Saving Private Ryan, uh, Titanic, uh, the list goes on. And even though it's just a film, when that main character, when the hero of the story dies, you feel gutted, don't you? Uh, I recently start, started reading the Harry Potter series. In fact, I just finished it, the seven books. Uh, Isabel's read the whole series three times, so I thought I'd better catch up and see what this thing is about. Um, I've not seen the films. Anyway, I got to the wards the end of the sixth book, and one of the main characters, Dumbledore, who is this uh, very powerful but benevolent wizard, he gets killed. And I'm reading this, I'm like, they can't kill Dumbledore. He's one of them, after Harry Potter, he's like the main person, they can't kill him. This is terrible. And that was my reaction to the death of a fictional character in a book. Imagine how the disciples must have felt when Jesus told them that he was going to be handed over to the religious authorities and killed. Their, their idea of the Messiah was one who would be given authority, glory, and sovereign power. His dominion would be an everlasting dominion. How could he be killed? As usual, Peter says what's on his mind. He takes Jesus off to one side and rebukes him, tells him off. says, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. You shouldn't be talking like this. It's pretty demoralizing, you know. And of course, Jesus rebukes Peter. But what we uh, have here is, is, I guess, an insight into Peter's priorities. He wants a Messiah who will rid the Jewish people of the Romans. He wants to see Israel gain ascendancy over the other nations. He may even, at least in part, crave the personal glory that he imagines will come from being a close associate and friend of Jesus. And we know that was going through the disciples' minds because there's that uh, point in the gospel where they're literally having an argument over who will be the greatest in the kingdom. Peter knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but he has got his priorities badly wrong. And the same can happen to us. We can know who Jesus is, we can know he's the Messiah, and yet we can get our priorities badly wrong. And part of the reason that Peter got his priorities wrong is that he has an incomplete picture of who Jesus is. He's imagining, along with the rest of the Jewish people, a powerful military leader. He's probably familiar with the messianic prophecies that speak in terms of authority, glory, and power, like Daniel 7 that we read before. But it would seem that he's not quite so familiar with some of the other prophecies about Jesus. Isaiah 53, for example. Let, let me just read verses 3 to 5. It says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Amazingly, Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53 in his death. And he fulfilled Daniel 7 in his resurrection. 
And this is what Jesus is explaining to the disciples. He's trying to put these two aspects of his messiahship side by side. The authority and the glory and the power and the pain and the suffering and the death. But they can't grasp it. They just cannot get over the fact that Jesus is talking about being killed. And then Jesus drops another bombshell. Because up until this point, the disciples hadn't understood what following Jesus would cost them. Jesus says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Taking up one's cross is not just a way of describing the struggles and the difficulties of life. In Jesus' world, a person who took up a cross was going to die on it. Being a disciple of Jesus means dying to our old, sinful, self-centered life and starting a new life with Jesus at the center. If we cling to our old life, we will miss the meaning, the purpose, and the potential of life. If we cling to our old life, we will miss the meaning, the purpose, and the potential of life. We will lose our life. Conversely, if we die to our old sinful life and rise to new life with Christ, we will begin to experience the fullness of life that Jesus offers us, and we will be with him forever. The person who takes up their cross is able to say, along with the uh, author of Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Where would we be going? Following Jesus, carrying a cross, if not to his death and resurrection, which is, by the way, also our death and resurrection. Carrying a cross as a follower of Jesus means nothing less than giving up one's whole life for Jesus. We give our whole lives over to Jesus. We give him everything, our thoughts, hopes, desires, dreams, aspirations, uh, time, money, skills, talent, everything. And we make Jesus' priorities our priorities. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, that sounds a bit risky. I don't think I like the idea of someone else being in charge of every aspect of my existence and being. It sounds restrictive, stifling, disempowering. Frankly, it sounds like it might be a bit boring. But this is where we get it so wrong. Because true life and true freedom are only found in Christ. You cannot improve on God's plan for your life. The problem is we make our plans and we set our priorities and we don't want anything or anyone to change it or get in the way of it. And that's how it was for Jesus' disciples. They thought they had a pretty good idea of how things were going to pan out, not realizing that God's plan would in fact be much harder um, 
for Jesus and for them, but it would also be infinitely better. The American politician Donald Rumsfeld said this. He said, there are no knowns. There are things we know, we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things that we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones that we don't know, we don't know. And these are the things that we get blindsided by. When we're confronted with unknown unknowns, in other, in other words, when, when something that is hitherto completely unknown to us suddenly becomes known, it can come as quite a shock. The disciples did not understand what kind of disciple, uh, uh, Messiah Jesus was and is. Never in a million years would they imagine that he uh, would be put in a position of such weakness and uh, or seeming weakness and vulnerability and uh, that he would be killed. They just, that was just not on their radar at all. That was an unknown unknown to them. Now, we're familiar with the story. We know that Jesus died, and after three days, he rose to new life. So it doesn't have the same shock factor for us. The thing that we struggle with, that is perhaps an unknown unknown for many Christians, is that taking up our cross means dying to our old life. We die so that we can be reborn and remade in the image of Christ. Jesus asked the question, he asked us the question, who do you say I am? And we have a choice. Either Jesus is the Messiah described in the New Testament or he's not. But if he is, he is the Messiah who requires us to give up our whole lives for him. It is very daunting. Do you think the disciples wouldn't have been daunted by what Jesus was saying to them? It it's daunting and it's difficult. I think I may have uh, used this quote before, but it's worth uh, repeating. G.K. Chesterton once wrote this. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. But once we make our choice, once we have recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, and it's only the Holy Spirit that can reveal that to us. All that remains is for us to pick up our cross and follow him. That doesn't mean that we'll be perfect. But the more we can align our priorities with Jesus's priorities, the more change and transformation we'll experience in our lives, the greater the sense of fulfillment and purpose, the uh, deeper the connection and the relationship with God, the more uh, fulsome our worship, the fuller our lives. Dying to self and living for Christ is what true life is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that your son Jesus is the Messiah, uh, not just the Messiah for the Jewish people, but for all people. We recognize that Jesus lived and died and rose to new life so that we might experience the fullness of life that he offers. But we also confess that in so many ways we try to cling onto our old lives. Help us, Father, to release our grip on our old lives, to shed that 
person that we were before we came to know and love you. And we pray that you will help us to to keep being changed and transformed into Christ's likeness, that our priorities would be his priorities. Help us to see not only that Jesus is the Messiah, but the kind of Messiah he is, what he asks of us, and what that means for our lives. Lord, we thank you that true life and true freedom are to be found in your son Jesus, and that we pray that that will really sink into our hearts and minds today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.